Welcome to St. James Christian Church. We're glad that you're here today. I want to encourage you, if you're visiting with us, to fill out a visitor card, or if you're uh, watching us online and uh, are new to us, go to our website and fill out the visitor card there so that we can know that you were worshiping with us today. Got a, a few different announcements. Uh, the, the, the big one right now is that next weekend is our fellowship dinner. Next Sunday after service is our fellowship dinner, and it is the annual chili cook-off, which I didn't realize until this week, and we need to get everybody signed up for the cook-off. So there's three different categories of chili that you can enter your chili in. Uh, we would love for you to participate in that and to, to be at that. The sign-up lists are on the board at the back of the foyer. So check that out after services today. I have been asked, uh, Caleb would like to meet with all of the kids, basically junior high and under, uh, right up here, this side up front, uh, right after services. And uh, the last thing I want to tell you about is our upcoming uh, men's conference, which we have confirmed is going to be in February more on that in, in just a minute. First, I want to tell you that here at St. James Christian Church, one of our core values is that we speak the truth. And uh, so I decided to give myself the core value presentation today because this is the big part of my job, speaking, speaking the truth. And uh, I am deeply committed to speaking the truth. Try to make sure that you get an outpouring of scripture from this pulpit every week that you are here. The reality of our world situation is that the truth has become kind of a rare commodity. And somewhere along the line, we have started to substitute what I would like you to believe for the truth. So when people are in the world telling us the truth, giving us the facts, Really what they're doing is they're telling a story about what it is they would like us to believe. It may or may not be rooted in any objective reality. And so it becomes all the more important that the people of God speak the truth of God because the world around us becomes more acclimated to deception. And so here in this place, we have a commitment to speaking the truth and when we have a question about what the truth really is, we seek it out from God's Word. Now, we're going to uh, just direct your attention to the screen. We've got a brief video about the men's conference. Ever find yourself up to your chin in financial stress? Or you can't reconcile a bad relationship? Or your boss is unsatisfied no matter how hard you try? There's only one thing you can do. You press on. The Bible tells us to press on toward the goal, to win the prize God has called us to. Like a well-run race, we need men to cheer each other on to the finish line, where God will say to each of us, well done. This year's No Regrets Men's Conference will lay the spiritual foundation so you can press on. Our tremendous faculty of speakers, along with powerful worship, life transformation stories, breakout sessions and discussions, will challenge and inspire you to press on. We are so excited to be meeting in person and virtually this year as thousands of men around the country and world will gather at host site churches or with small groups of guys in their homes. Be sure you are with us on Saturday, February 5th, 2022, 
for the No Regrets Men's Conference. All right, so we're very excited about this. We are a host site. This is the first time we've ever done this. We're a host site for this conference this year. Uh, we're hoping it turns into an annual thing. And uh, it, it is February 5th. It starts about 8 in the morning and goes uh, till roughly 2 o'clock. Uh, so it's not a multi-day commitment. It's a fairly simple, <laughs> simple thing to be involved in. And we would love it if uh, all of you guys choose to be there. And uh, bring your friends, too. So let's get into the message for today. Uh, if, uh, if you were paying enough attention, you might have noticed that uh, uh, January 6th was an important day, not for the reason that the press and the media would like you to believe, but because it was the Feast of Epiphany. We don't often talk about the Feast of Epiphany, uh, but... Uh, the Feast of Epiphany is uh, the day, traditionally speaking, that your church had set aside as the day when the wise men actually arrived to see the baby Jesus. It also, uh, in this, and we don't know when this got started, we don't know how the tradition got started, it shows up about the middle of the 4th century uh, as a practice. People are observing this day as the day that the Magi arrive, and also as the day of Jesus' baptism, because they imagine in their calendar that Jesus is baptized on that day 30 years later, on his birthday. And so these things, these things were celebrated. So when we sing uh, that song, uh, The Twelve Days of Christmas, kids, you probably don't know this, uh, I know the 12 days of Christmas seems like maybe silly songs with Larry or something. It's a lot of gibberish. 12 days of Christmas is actually the 12 days of Christmas tide. And it was the 12 days from Christmas to the eve of, uh, of the Feast of Epiphany. The reason for that is that, again, according to church tradition, the assumption was that the wise men arrived 12 days after the birth of Jesus. So we know that when we set up a nativity scene and we have the shepherds and the wise men and everybody's there at the same time, that's not actually how all of that happened. Uh, the wise men arrive later. Some people think as much as two years later, that's based on Herod's instruction that all the baby boys two years and under be, be put to death. So it probably wasn't two years later because, uh, well, there's a number of reasons why. It's probably not two years later. It was some, sometime between 12 days after and two years after Jesus' birth, the wise men show up, and that is the epiphany or the manifestation of God. God manifests. The 12 days of Christmas celebrates that, that interval, and actually all the verses of that song have particular meaning. The partridge in the pear tree is the symbol of Jesus. The two turtle doves are a symbol of the Old and New Testament. The three French hens are a symbol of faith, hope, and love. The four calling birds are a symbol of the four gospels. The five golden rings are a symbol of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, so on and so forth. Well, my objective this morning, although it may seem like it, my objective is not to help you win at Trivial Pursuits. 
my objective is to share with you some very important things that are happening here with this epiphany. <coughs> so Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, includes this story, even though unlike Luke, he doesn't include a lot of the other things that happened around the time of the birth of Jesus. This story seems of particular importance to Matthew. In fact, he focuses uh, on the lineage of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus, the location of Jesus' birth, and the arrival of these wise men, these magi. Why are they there? That's the question. And why is it important? Well, I'm going to attempt to give you some insight into that in about 400 years. Because that is the focus of this morning's lesson. I find myself in the unusual position of teaching to you the Bible that isn't in the Bible. The 400 years of silence, there is really nothing, nothing new added to Scripture between Malachi and Matthew. There's that 400 years that nothing is going on. Now we come back to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29.10. He says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come for you to fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Jeremiah is telling the people, look, God has had enough of your nonsense, and you are going to be defeated by the Babylons and taken off into exile. But I'm telling you right now, 70 years later, I'm going to bring you back to this place, and we're going to restore the city. We're going to restore my glory in this place. Since the time of that exile, hope revolved around a renewed Jerusalem and a coming kingdom. All of the great prophecies at this point revolve around this, these things happening. And this is the story that we've been reading in Ezra and Nehemiah and the assorted minor prophets that go with them. Is this story of all the people returning after 70 years of exile, returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, to bring into, uh, bring to life these promises that God has made. Exile was a consequence of the unfaithfulness of God's people. But even as the prophets are announcing the disciplinary measures that God is going to take, because of this unfaithfulness, they are at the same time announcing that God continues to be faithful. And so because God is faithful, even though he's going to allow this to happen, you will come back. The temple will be rebuilt. The city will be restored. Beyond that, there will be a new kingdom. There will be a messianic, Davidic king. A descendant of David will be put back on the throne, but he won't be like the other kings. He will be sent directly from God. He will be a messianic king, a savior king, a deliverer, and his kingdom will will be permanent. Well, Jeremiah's 70-year part of that prophecy is fulfilled kind of in fits and starts, and that's the story that we have been reading. They eventually get the temple built, they eventually get the wall built, they eventually get the city back in some kind of order. But 
this glorious future, this coming kingdom, this messianic leader that's supposed to show up, none of this is surprising. So we come back to Daniel, because Daniel is the one who talks about this extensively. And Daniel 9.24 says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Seventy weeks, or seventy times seven, seventy-sevens. This is kind of confusing because it sounds like we're talking about days, but really we're talking about years. It's a collection of 70 times 7 years. Daniel's vision reveals a delay, a very detailed 5-century delay. Jeremiah said it would take 70 years. That was his prophecy. That came to pass. After 70 years, the people are allowed to return to the Holy Land. They're allowed to return to the Holy Land by King Cyrus, who was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah talked about Cyrus 150 years before any of this happens. He names Cyrus by name. He says, this is the king who will allow my people to return to Israel. The temple and the city are rebuilt. Daniel receives this prophecy that says, this will be a, a week of 70s. It will be 70 times 7. The timeline went from 70 years to now 490 years. It's going to be 490 years after, the, after the, the prophecy starts to be fulfilled. It'll be another 490 years before this Messiah comes before the end of sin comes, before reconciliation comes. Now this is part disciplinary. We know that, that this is, uh, the prophets tell us that this is a result of the people's unfaithfulness. But it is also part strategic. As Galatians 4 tells us, Jesus comes in the fullness of time. In other words, he comes when the time is right. Not just the fullness of time in terms of satisfying the demands of this prophecy, but the fullness of time in terms of it actually being the perfect time for Jesus to arrive on the scene. The transition from Malachi to Matthew is very dramatic, and it is extremely important. We don't talk about it very often because we don't have a text for it. And so it's easy for us to sort of overlook it, to jump from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. But whenever we do that, and all, the, all you Bible readers will recognize this, if you read the Old Testament and then read the New Testament, you see that there are these dramatic shifts that have taken place. Everything's different. The, everything that's going on is different. There are, there are these huge transitions Daniel's prophecy says that after seven, seven and 62 weeks, there'll be a fulfillment of the city. That's 
and the, and, and the rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of the temple. That's kind of the seven weeks. And 62 weeks after that, there'll be this fulfillment of this coming kingdom. That's pretty specific. In that time, a lot of things change. One thing, for instance, is the population. You remember that at the end of Nehemiah, there's still only about 50,000 Jews in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. By the time the New Testament opens, we estimate that there were at least half a million Jews maybe somewhere between five and 600,000 Jews in Judea at that time. And there remained, historically speaking, an enormous Jewish community in Babylon, and surprisingly enough, an enormous Jewish community in Egypt. Uh, in fact, over a million Jews in Egypt at the time of Jesus' birth, which you know, when we read that story about Jesus and his family fleeing to Egypt, that was actually a very reasonable thing to do. There's a whole Jewish community down there to greet them and accept them. The political shifts that happened during this era reveal the accuracy of Daniel's prophecies. Now, Daniel's prophecies are so exact, they are so precise, that secular historians generally dismiss them as something that must have been written after the fact. Simply not possible that Daniel knew all of this in advance. It's almost as if God is whispering in his ear. There will be a succession of kingdoms. We know those stories from Daniel. We've got that big statue that's divided into different parts, and we've got four beasts that rise up out of the sea. There are these different kingdoms that are coming, and three of them, incidentally, are named specifically in Daniel's prophecy. They are the kingdoms of Babylon, the Medo-Persian uh, empire and the Greek empire. And then there is this fourth empire that remains unnamed, which turns out to be Rome. In the interpretation of these dream visions, Daniel predicts everything with considerable specificity. There are these four beasts of Daniel 7, and he says the first is a lion with eagle wings. Now this is Babylon. Sort, sort of not hard to predict the arrival of the kingdom in which you are currently making the prophecy. So this may be not be uh, the most exciting part of Daniel's prophecy, but he says this, this is the first kingdom, and he says that it is the greatest kingdom. The second, he says, is, was like a bear. And it's a weirdly detailed picture of this bear. Because he's got three ribs in his mouth and he's kind of all raised up on one side. This is the Medo-Persian Empire that conquered Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. That's the three ribs in the bear's mouth. It's raised up on one side because even though it's an alliance between Medea and Persia, Persia was clearly the stronger side of that equation. So it's kind of an unbalanced alliance. The third is like a leper with four wings and four heads. It just keeps getting weirder. Four wings and four heads. This is the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And it is a leopard because of its speed. The Greek Empire 
under Alexander the Great, basically conquers the world in a period of 10 years. It's a remarkable feat, particularly for a guy whose dad didn't think he would amount to much. Didn't think, then did not think Alex was going to go far. He was kind of a bookish kid, studying under Aristotle, by the way. But he ends up taking over dad's kingdom and expanding it to really nearly all of the developed world at that time. The Greeks had a huge influence on all the cultures that they were a part of. One of the things, one of the things that Alexander sort of put into, uh, put into effect was Hellenization. And Hellenization is basically, let's make everybody a little bit Greek. Let's combine their cultures with ours in a way that makes everybody a little bit Greek. And so we see these conflicts that arise between Jews, uh, traditional Jews, and Hellenized Jews. Now remember, uh, at Alexandria in Egypt, there is this enormous population of Jewish people. Well, Alexandria is named after, guess who? Alexander. So this is a Greek city, a very Hellenized Greek city, but there is an enormous number of Jews in this place. Now Josephus, the historian Josephus, tells this really interesting story about uh, Alexander's conquest of the Holy Land. Alexander is sweeping across the map. His armies are just, every, every nation that comes before them is falling. He's sweeping across the map, and he reaches Judea. And Josephus says that the priests in the city see him coming, see his armies coming, and they rush out to meet him. And they rush out to meet him with a scroll of Daniel. And basically they say, this, this, this comes from Josephus, historian Josephus, he says, they go out with this scroll of Daniel, they meet Alexander, and they say, Alex, we knew you were coming. He's like, what are you talking about? And they show him in the prophet Daniel that his empire was going to take over the world. Alexander is so impressed by this that he basically bypasses Jerusalem. He doesn't destroy Jerusalem as he's rolling through. He bypasses Jerusalem and he shows enormous respect to the Jews from that point forward. So, down in Alexandria, at the southern extent of Alex's empire, they began to do something very interesting. They began to translate the Holy Scriptures, the Torah and the prophets and the poetry into Greek. And so we end up with what becomes known as the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, or specifically the Torah. The Torah came first, the rest of the books were eventually translated. The whole process took more than a century, so it was a uh, a major uh, accomplishment. Unfortunately uh, for Alex, after just 12 years in rule, he dies after a drunken party in Babylon. And according to Daniel 11, his kingdom would be parceled to the four winds, but would not go to any of his descendants. This is why this is why the leopard has four heads. 
Because after Alex dies, his kingdom goes to his top four generals. As a matter of fact, he has a, a young son. He also has a young illegitimate son, and he has a wife. They are all put to death by these four generals who initially say, we're going to keep, keep the kingdom for you until you're old enough. And then they decide, no, we've got it. We're going to hold on to it. So they kill off his family, and now these four generals run the empire, and they divide it up four different ways. Two of these generals become uh, very important to the Bible story. Daniel says that there's going to be this prolonged battle between the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. The north and the south of what? What's the north and the south of Jerusalem? We have, do we have that? No? So to the south, we have the Ptolemaic kingdom, and to the north, we have the Seleucid kingdom, where the red and the green meet. Guess what's there? Judea. So these two, these two generals, their sphere of influence meets right there in the middle of the Holy Land, and guess what they spend the next few decades fighting over? Fighting back and forth, Jerusalem finds itself right in the middle of this enormous political conflict, and it goes on and on. Daniel describes all of this in great detail, all the things that are going to happen. The north is going to advance on the south, and then the south is going to retaliate, and it goes back and forth, and they send their children to be married off into the other kingdoms trying to make peace, and that doesn't work, and they try all kinds of different things, and all of these things play out in history, again, remarkably detailed uh, prophecies. And then, Daniel says, a leader will arise, and he won't even be a rightful heir to the throne, and he will be a contemptible person. A contemptible person. A military leader who launches a campaign against the southern kingdom that is failed he comes back and visits his wrath upon the Jews. So in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, it says, His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Now this particular character is named Antiochus IV. And Antiochus IV establishes the archetype Antichrist. Now you're heard that term before, gets thrown around a lot. And Antiochus IV is really the first character leading into the gospel era, leading into the Christian era, that we can kind of identify as an antichrist-type figure. Antiochus comes to the throne, changes his name, and labels himself Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember, epiphany means God manifest. So what is he saying about himself? I am, in fact, the very fleshly image of God. That is a title reserved for one guy, and it's not Antiochus. Antiochus does launch this big campaign into Egypt, trying to, uh, trying to defeat that southern kingdom, 
he is turned back. He does this a couple of times. Finally, he's turned back in failure, and even though he has some of the spoils of war to sort of soothe his uh, pains over that, he blamed the Jews for his failure. I don't know. Blaming the Jews for failure seems to be a standard historical theme. It comes up over and over again. He blames the Jews for his failure. And so he launches a campaign of persecution against the Jews. Now, up to this point, the Greek Empire has been somewhat favorable towards Judaism. But everything changes with Antiochus IV. Among other things, he sets up an idol of Zeus in the temple. And then, to add insult to injury, he sacrifices a pig on the altar, an unclean animal, which essentially makes the temple worship completely invalid until the temple can be cleansed again. So it is a great insult, which Daniel predicted very accurately, that the temple worship would come to a halt because of this antichrist, this false leader, false messiah. That's a pretty major theme in Daniel, that someone's going to come as a deliverer, but this would-be deliverer brings about an abomination that causes desolation. Antiochus, incidentally, inspires the Maccabean Rebellion, and it is the Maccabean Rebellion that is the story for Hanukkah. So Hanukkah, if you don't know anything else about Hanukkah, you probably know about the candelabra thing, right? So they have a menorah for Hanukkah, and it is different from the temple menorah. The temple menorah had seven candles or seven lamps on it. The Hanukkah menorah has nine. There's a central one plus eight. That's because in the Maccabean Rebellion, they take the temple back, and they purify the temple. The only problem is they only have one day's worth of oil to burn in the temple menorah, and somehow, miraculously, that one day of oil lasts for eight days until they're able to get additional uh, oil for the, for the lamps. And so at Hanukkah every year, uh, faithful Jews celebrate this miraculous event when the temple lamps stay lit for, for eight days. Then there's the final beast. The final beast... We're not told what it's like. We're just told that it's terrifying. It's powerful. It crushes everything. It has feet of bronze. It, it is, in fact, the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire will be the world power at the time of the New Testament, when the New Testament opens. And we know from histories even today that the Roman Empire was brutal in its efficiency. They had all the innovation of the Greek Empire, but with a military that was virtually unstoppable. Now, Rome, like its Greek predecessor, was reasonably tolerant of the religions of the different people in its territories. Actually, this is one of the things that helped the Roman Empire succeed. There were relatively few insurrections or revolts because as long as you allow the conquered people to retain their culture, they tend to, to, to go on, get along uh, by going along. And so 
despite the poverty of the people, because most of the Jews under Roman control were extremely impoverished, there is a rich religious life, and there's a very active temple worship. But religious and social divisions had solidified into factions. The rise of Hellenism, sort of the, the Greekification of Judaism, versus those who thought that that Greek influence was terrible and negative, especially after uh, Antiochus rose to power, creates this sort of tension. And so now you have this Hellenization influence versus the anti-Hellenization influence. That sort of gives rise to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, because the Sadducees were more Hellenized. They were more invested in Greek culture. They had abandoned certain elements of Jewish culture in order to adopt that Greek culture. And the Pharisees were sort of the purists. Now, by the time we start reading about the Pharisees in the New Testament, almost everything that's said about them is negative. But they actually start off pretty positive. They're, they're this movement about restoring uh, the fundamentals, restoring the law and the practices of Judaism. There are other groups, the Essenes, which is sort of a separatist movement, and there are the zealots uh, that come up a couple of times in the Gospels, and the zealots were essentially the militia of the day. They were prepared to fight the Roman Empire using uh, violence and physical force. We also see, all of a sudden, synagogues. You ever wonder about this? You're reading through the Old Testament, no mention of synagogues. And then you get to the New Testament, there's synagogues everywhere. And there literally were. There were synagogues everywhere. Every major city or town had a synagogue. The synagogue actually has its start, interestingly enough, during the Babylonian exile. Because the people no longer have a temple, and they no longer have access to the temple. They don't even have a tabernacle. They, they, they can't... Uh, they can't offer sacrifices. We talked about that. Remember when, uh, when Zerubbabel gets back and they, the first thing they do is they build an altar. Why? Well, because for all this time they haven't been able to practice any of these uh, ritual sacrifices. They're still not able in, in Babylon to practice those ritual sacrifices, but they decide, well, there's a lot of other things that we could be doing. We can be teaching. We can be, uh, we can be invested in, in the Torah. And we'll do that through something called the synagogue. And the practice of raising up a synagogue, which, again, kind of like a church, we come to associate with the building, but is actually a collection of people. Practice of developing these synagogues from one town to another uh, becomes prominent during that era. And by the time we get to the opening of Matthew, these synagogues are everywhere. They also become quite strong, quite popular at this time because even though temple worship is still being carried out and everybody's participating in the sacrifices and, and doing all of those things, the temple is almost exclusively controlled by the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were very powerful because they had control of the temple, but they have control of the temple because they sort of made a deal with the devil. They have somewhat friendly terms with the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire allows them to have the power that they have. Consequently, even though the Sadducees are extremely powerful, they are also extremely unpopular with the general population of Judea. 
And so the synagogue becomes an even more important place for people to go and learn and worship and grow in their understanding of their God. And a lot of that happens through the development of the rabbinical schools. Again, reading through the Old Testament. Where are the rabbis? We don't have rabbis. We have prophets and we have kings and we have all these other things going on. By the time the New Testament opens, there are these rabbis and these rabbinical schools. That's all a function of the synagogues. The world of Matthew is basically perfectly prepared for the Messiah. The synagogues provided a venue for spreading this kingdom gospel that Jesus is going to be preaching. The rabbinical system provides him with a context for recruiting and training disciples. The scriptures have all been translated into Greek, which by that point in history is kind of an international language. Latin was the official language of Rome. Aramaic is the official language of Judea. But Greek is spoken throughout Rome, throughout Judea, and even throughout a lot of Egypt. And so Greek is, in a lot of ways, the way that we Americans think of English. We think everywhere we go, people should speak English, you know, for our benefit. Uh, Greek was that language in this era. No matter what your native tongue was, everybody kind of spoke a little bit of Greek. And so Greek is not only an incredibly exacting language, which makes it really interesting for Bible study, but the fact that the Bible of that day, the Old Testament, what we, what we call the Old Testament, had all been translated into Greek, meant that you had an opportunity to speak to almost everyone in the known civilized world. There's also the question of Roman infrastructure. One of the things that made Rome so successful is they built roads. And they built roads primarily to keep their army on the move, much as our uh, interstate highway system was originally built as a military concept. We want to be able to move resources around the country. That was the justification for it. And it was the same justification that the Roman Empire used. They built roads, 250,000 miles of roads which in that era is pretty remarkable. Even more remarkable is that 50,000 miles of those roads were paved. And they couldn't just bring out the asphalt trucks. All those roads were paved with stone. It had to be cut and placed. 50,000 miles of paved roads. Some of those roads still exist today, which is saying a lot. And how difficult it is to find a stretch of our highways that don't have potholes. They have 2,000-year-old Roman roads that are still in reasonably good condition. As Daniel prophesied, the Roman Empire conquered everything. It comes in with its fists of bronze and just conquers the whole world. Every part of every empire before it falls to Rome. Which sounds rather ominous, but what it meant for the gospel, what it meant for the early church, is that there were essentially no borders to cross. Everywhere you went was already a part of this singular world empire. 
but it's still an occupying power for all the good things that Rome bought, brought. They are running the nation of Israel, which is kind of an insult. And they are taxing Israel for the privilege of being dominated. So it's not just what was right about the world that made it the perfect time for Jesus to come. It's also about everything that's wrong with the world that makes it the perfect time for Jesus to come. Because on top of everything else, it is also a world of kingdom counterfeits. Now, mind you, it's been nearly 600 years since the Babylonian exile. The city has been rebuilt. The temple has been rebuilt. The nation is restored to Judea, and yet they are dominated still by an occupying foreign power. They do have a palace now and a king. Remember, Matthew says that all these events happen in the days of King Herod. And Herod, we know from history, as Herod the Great. And he is called Herod the Great because of his expansive building projects. So you remember that in Ezra and Nehemiah, there is this angst, this depression that the people have, that the city and the temple, it's back, but it's, is it really? It's not nearly as glorious as it was before. Herod comes along and he solves all those problems. He's got money coming out of Rome and from taxing the people into poverty. And he builds these expansive building projects. He builds himself this palace. He expands the temple, essentially completely replacing the temple that Zerubbabel and his people built. We still consider it the same temple because they... They kept the temple open the whole time during the construction, so there was always something there. But he ripped down all the facades, built everything up bigger, expanded, uh, expanded the courtyards around the temple. He even had to build up the hill. Had a big backfill project and built up the hill so they could have a bigger flat area so that he could make the temple more grand. Herod is even called the king of the Jews. So here we are. What have the people been waiting for? They've been waiting for the glory of the temple to be restored. They've been waiting for the city to be restored. They've been waiting for a new king of the Jews to arrive. And now it appears that they have all of this, but all of it is counterfeit. Herod is not from the line of David. He's not even Jewish. Ethnically, he is an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. So not only is he not from the line of David, he's not from the line of Jacob. He's from the other brother. Now, the Roman Empire is not going to make this distinction, but the Jews certainly would. You recall this conversation from uh, last week's message in Malachi. Malachi 1, 2, and 3. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Well... God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Jacob is the brother that God chooses, and Jacob's sons are the seeds of the tribes of Israel. Esau is the brother that was rejected. 
And so now, all of a sudden, we have a descendant of the brother rejected on the throne ruling over the people that God has chosen. It's kind of an insult. But he knew a guy. Actually, his father knew a guy. His father had done some favors to the Roman Empire. And so when Rome takes over the territory, they decide, we're going to give these people a king and we'll, we'll tap this guy. So Herod knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy that once did something for the Roman emperor. And tickety-boo, you're the king of the Jews. That's how that works. Kind of like small-town politics. This picks up on this antichrist theme. That something is going to stand in the place of what is actually meant to be. It's going to, in some ways, at least in outer ways, in exterior ways, look like what you've been waiting for, but it ain't the real thing. And so the city's restored, the temple's glorious, there's a king on the throne, but it's all wrong. And everyone's looking around, waiting for the real Messiah, the real deliverer to come. And some had even applied for the job. There are various guys that claim to be the Messiah or whose followers claim that they're the the Messiah. Uh, We think, for instance, that the zealots, that zealot movement actually started with a messianic hopeful, somebody who claimed to be the Messiah. And, of course, it was a military leader because we're looking for someone who will come and deliver the people from the oppression of the Roman Empire just the way that the people were delivered from the Egyptian pharaohs after 400 years of waiting. After this 400 years of waiting, they're waiting for a new Moses to arrive who's going to save them from Rome. Daniel says, 77s. And oddly enough, that timeline is finally winding down. All these messianic figures crop up because everybody knows, based on that timeline, that sometime around now, the window should be opening for this messianic king to arrive. Something has got to give. And so Matthew's gospel connects the story of Jesus to the kingdom prophecy. It opens with the genealogy of Jesus making sure everybody understands that Jesus is in the line of David. There's only one reason for that. It's because everybody knows the Messiah will come from the line of David. He offers details of how Jesus came to be born of a virgin because everybody knows the Messiah will be born of a virgin. He explains how Jesus comes to be born in Bethlehem because everybody knew that Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And so Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It's very interesting because that term Magi is not a Greek word and it's not a Hebrew word. It's, it's Magus, which comes from some foreign language, a foreign eastern language. 
And historians generally agree at this point that its origin is specifically Babylonian. It comes from Babylon. Magus simply means a wise man or a seer, the sort of person that would be an advisor to the king. Oh, and I love this. Back when Daniel first starts coming to prominence in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 48, it says, Then king, the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him rule over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Why do wise men come from the east seeking the king of the Jews? because they are following a prophecy that came from the east, a prophecy given by a man from Judea who was placed over all of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel prophesied with great specificity that a king would come and that a king would come at this time. And Matthew says... Babylon is where this great time of waiting begins, and Jesus is where the great time of waiting ends. Since our exile, hope has revolved around the coming kingdom. And I don't mean exile to Babylon, even though metaphorically, spiritually speaking, we've, we've been exiled to Babylon as well, and we'll get into that down the road, but... This is about our exile from God, our exile from paradise, from life, and from hope. And the promise was, the promise was that a Savior would come, a Deliverer would come, a King would come, and there'd be a whole new kingdom that would last forever because of this King. And, and here's, here's the sad part. Most Christians don't seem to know that the kingdom is already here. It's already happened. Jesus didn't announce his gospel that the kingdom would eventually arrive. So the kingdom is at hand. And by the time we reach the end of his ministry, by the time we reach the day of Pentecost, Peter says to his brothers, to his fellow Israelites. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The king has already arrived. The kingdom has been instituted. Everything has been placed under his feet. And we are citizens of that kingdom.